Since the very beginning of the gospel, and when I say that I'm thinking of the incarnation, people have arrayed themselves against Jesus and waged unholy war against His divine personhood. In my estimation, the most contested of all Christian doctrines is the deity of Christ. During some of the ancient ecumenical council meetings, early meetings by the church, before it was considered the Roman Catholic Church, then it was just called the Catholic Church, which means universal. But during some of those early ancient ecumenical council meetings, the deity of Christ was a primary subject. The most notable of those meetings would be the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., It was called by Emperor Constantine, who was concerned about disunity in the church. He once said, division in the church is worse than war. And I think he was right. The disunity was being caused by a lethal heresy that had crept into the church. It was known as Arianism. Its founder, Arius, a priest from Alexandria, North Africa, taught that Christ is not divine, that He is not God, that He is merely a created being. At its core, Arianism denies the deity of Christ and rejects the doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It had become so pervasive at that time that Christians all over the empire were going around singing a catchy little tune that championed the Arian view. There was a time when the sun was not. At the urging of many church leaders, primarily bishops, Constantine convened a council to discuss the matter, settle the matter, and reestablish unity in the church. The council consisted of 318 bishops who met in Nicaea, modern-day Iznik, Turkey. Three party leaders presented their interpretations of Scripture and views on Christ. Arius argued that Christ is of a different substance than God. Eusebius argued that Christ is of a similar substance to God. And Athanasius argued that Christ is of the same, the same substance as God. And he pointed out from Scripture and philosophical reasoning that Christ must be equal to God the Father. The Father had declared to Moses, I am who I am. And I am is precisely the name Christ had given himself when he said, before Abraham was, I am. John 8.58, you might remember that. That is the argument that uh, Athanasius used. Now, the council listened to each party leader, studied Scripture, and discussed the subject in a lot of detail. At the end, the council sided with Athanasius, labeled Arianism as heresy, and condemned Arius, its founder, He was excommunicated and sent into exile by Constantine. The Council of Nicaea also constructed the Nicene Creed, which is a doctrinal statement that affirms both the deity of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity. 
Now, 11 years later, after this ruling, Constantine reversed the council's decision and ordered Athanasius, now bishop of Alexandria, to readmit Arius into the church and restore his position. Now, you must keep in mind that Arius did not get enlightened during his exile. He was holding the same position. In fact, he was still spreading his demonic doctrines as he was in exile. So it wasn't because he repented and did the right thing. It was because Constantine had a change of heart toward him. And in fact, Constantine really wasn't interested in the doctrine at all. All he wanted was peace in the church. Constantine wasn't quite the Christian that we all tend to think he is. I don't think he was one at all, actually. What happened when he uh, summonsed Athanasius and told Athanasius, okay, you put him out of the church, now you need to bring him back in? Athanasius refused. And Constantine was outraged, and he hired false witnesses to make false charges against Athanasius. At the Synod of Tyre in 335 A.D., Athanasius was found guilty, and now he was sent into exile by the same emperor. <laughs> Shortly after Constantine's death, his son Constantius II became emperor. He was a strong proponent, a strong advocate for Arianism. And he went through all his empire and removed all of the orthodox bishops and replaced them with Arian bishops. So basically, he went through and fired all of the good men of God who held to the Scripture and got rid of them and sent them into exile and replaced them with people like Arius, who was a heretic. During his exile, Athanasius made secret visits to Alexandria, and he wrote a letter to the bishops of Egypt denouncing Arianism and exhorting them to stand firm against the enemies of our Lord. He spent 17 years on the run as those loyal to Arianism sought to persecute him. Now, various forms of Arianism continued to pop up through the centuries. Modern expressions can be seen today in Christian heresies such as Mormonism and Jehovah Witnessism. Now, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Jews, had something in common with Arius and Arianism. They, too, denied the deity of Christ, or what I would like to call His Sonship. Now, you will often hear the elders of this church, including me, say things like, you must repent and believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ to be saved. How many of you can recall a time where I said something like that? I say it pretty frequently, probably almost every weekend. What we mean by believe in the person is that it is necessary to believe in the totality of who Jesus is for salvation. And the scriptures clearly, clearly teach that He is both the Son of Man, that means human, and the Son of God, that means divine. Arius argued that acceptance and belief in the deity of Christ is not necessary for salvation because it is not a reality. In other words, he's not God. So why would you have to believe in that if it's not a reality and not true? This is what he taught. This is what he held. Now, if this were true, then why did Christ spend so much of his time presenting this truth, affirming this truth through countless miracles 
and even defending this truth, like in verses 34 through 38 of John 10. This word or phrase or title or moniker, Son of God, which clearly refers to Jesus' deity, appears 82 times in the New Testament. If Jesus is not God, why does it appear 82 times in the New Testament? I don't understand where people come up with these arguments. If Jesus is not God, if this is not a reality, as Arius argued, why did Jesus apply God's title, his own self-title, I am, to himself seven times in John? Okay, reality check. And I'm answering the argument of Arius. Biblical salvation, which is true salvation. Okay, what the Bible says about how a person gets eternal life, that is the only truth relevant to that subject. Biblical salvation, true salvation, requires that we accept and believe in the full Jesus. The full Jesus, the God-man. Not a version of Jesus that fits with our crooked theological system or simply affirms what we've been taught by those who don't understand what biblical salvation is or who Jesus is as a person. If we deny the humanity of Christ like Gnostics do, we end up with an insufficient, unauthentic version of Jesus that cannot save us. If we deny the deity of Christ, His Sonship, like Arians do, we end up with an insufficient, unauthentic version of Jesus that cannot save us. And this is my introduction into this text which addresses this subject. This is going to be our fourth and final Sunday in John 10. And just remembering where we've been, we have looked at the summons the salvation and the security of the Good Shepherd. What do you suppose we're looking at today? We're looking at the sonship, the deity of the Good Shepherd. If you'd be so kind, please take your Bibles and turn to John 10. We're going to be looking at verses 31 through 42. We'll let Jesus speak for Himself on this matter. Because we really don't need counsels to tell us what to believe. It's a good thing when they tell us rightly what to believe. But really, truly, what we need is the Scripture itself because it is the authority and it is sufficient and it is inerrant without error. And we'll let Jesus tell us about this subject. Picking up where we left off, how did the Jews react to Jesus' teaching about His sheep believers, how they are eternally secure because they are in the unbreakable grip of God the Son, that's Jesus Himself, and God the Father. That's where we left off. Verse 31, what does it say? The Jews picked up stones again to stone Him. The Jews, the religious leaders, that's the reference here, the religious leaders erupted in violent outrage at the Lord's words. And they picked up stones and were about to execute Jesus right there on the spot. Now, this is the fourth attempt on Jesus' life according to the Gospel of John. Now, the Old Testament permitted death by stoning in certain instances. Leviticus 24.16 says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. 
All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So the Jews actually had a law that said that they could stone or execute somebody to death if they blasphemed the name of God or the person of God. They had that as a rule and as a law, but the Romans stripped the Jewish people, because they were the occupiers, they stripped the Jewish people of their ability to carry out such executions. Only the Roman government could exercise capital punishment, and it would never do that without a proper trial with witnesses. The Jewish people were actually required to perform a trial with witnesses as well. So they had within their law a mechanism or a process for investigating and, and, um, and you know, trying a person so they couldn't just start you know, killing people, heaven forbid. And if a person was found guilty of a capital offense and the death penalty was prescribed... The witnesses who witnessed that person perpetrate the crime, the witnesses were required to carry out the execution. And the bystanders who were present would join in. So isn't that interesting? If you saw somebody do something wrong and it was worthy of death and you came and bore witness against them, it would be by your own hand they would be put to death. That's incredible. So I'm not sure if a lot of people made those allegations against others because they probably just did not want to be involved in killing somebody. I don't know. According to verse 31, however, the religious leaders were attempting to usurp Roman law and bypass the Mosaic judicial process. Their violent reaction also reveals the true reason why they asked Jesus if He is the Christ in verse 24. Remember that? They came up and said, hey... Quit playing games and just tell us, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And, and here we see their reaction to Jesus when he says, I already told you that. Their reaction is they attempt to kill him. And this reveals that they were not sincere or genuinely interested in who Jesus is. When they asked him the question, they were thinking, we're going to trap him in his words and then we can rightly dispose of him because that's all they wanted to do. Now look at verse 32. Here's Jesus' response to them. Jesus answered them, I have shown you... Jesus, when I read this, I started laughing. I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? (laughs) In other words, I've been doing a lot of great things. You want to kill me for doing great things. Which one has offended you? He's using sarcasm here. Jesus employed sarc. Oh, he was super serious. He, he never laughed. He never did this. He ne- no, he actually used sarcasm. He literally used sarcasm. And, and think about the context. The religious leaders are standing there with stones hoisted above their heads, locked and loaded, right? They're ready to launch him. They're ready to hurl these stones at Jesus until he isn't breathing. And Jesus responds with sarcasm. Uh, Jesus is just amazing. His boldness, his courage, his fearlessness. I'm reminded of a, an old story I read. I literally read about this guy uh, last week early on before I started preparing my sermon, and it just blew my mind. It's an old story about an Italian martyr who was burned alive for his Protestant beliefs, right? It was the Roman Catholics that executed him because it, his beliefs didn't align with theirs. 
And after being tied to the stake, because this is how they executed people then, heretics. They burned them alive. They tied them to a pole, put kindling at their feet, and lit that stuff up and burned them alive. And after he was tied to the stake and, you know, bound, and, and they didn't cover your eyes or anything. They just left you there. And they tied him to the stake. And after that, the mayor of that particular town and the priests who accused the man of heresy began to dispute over who would pay for the execution supplies. This is what you do at the grocery store when you're discussing the price of guava nectar that's gone up. These guys, we just bought guava nectar. It was delicious, by the way. (laughs) But they're having this discussion in front of him. Before he's to be executed, he's bound, and, and these, this one party is arguing with the mayor over who's going to pay for the matchsticks and the wood. And they're going on and on and on about it. And this guy's probably just sitting there going, you've got to be kidding me. Can you imagine? And finally, the Italian guy, he interjected. He said, sirs, gentlemen, I will end your dispute. It is a pity that you should, either of you, be at so much expense to find matches for my burning. And for the Lord's sake, I will even pay for the wood that burns me, if you please. This man bought his own matches and his own wood for his execution for holding to the truth. And there is a bit of sarcasm in his words there. I can settle this for you. I'll pay for my own execution. And it was in a book that Spurgeon had wrote, and you can read about that story in Fox's Book of Martyrs, but Spurgeon replied to it, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have paid for my own execution supplies. (laughs) I don't think I would have either. I don't know. But what a tremendous, what a tremendous man of faith, fully trusting in his Lord and Savior, even willing to provide the material for his own death. Why? So he could bring Christ glory. And where would he be the moment he breathes his last breath? In paradise with Christ. Amen, right? My paraphrase of verse 32, I've done nothing but good works, saved a wedding, healed an official's dying son, healed a lame man, fed a multitude, healed a man born blind, etc., etc., and your response is you want to stone me to death. (laughs) Jesus was literally forcing them to acknowledge and deal with the miracles He performed at the direction of the Father. MacArthur wrote, Those good works offered visible tangible, and inescapable proof of his oneness with God, and thus proved that he was not a blasphemer, as in fact his opponents were. The Lord's question also put the religious leaders in the awkward position of opposing the very public and popular good things he had done in healing the sick and feeding the hungry, liberating the demon-possessed, and even raising the dead. And when I read that line, raising the dead, I, I, something came to mind. I, I don't know if, you're, if you know this or not, but did you know, according to the Gospels, Jesus raised three people 
from death? Because typically when we think of Jesus raising someone from death, we think of Lazarus, right? We think of John 11. Lazarus isn't the only person he raised to life from being fully dead during his ministry. He raised a widow's son in Luke 7, 11 through 17. He raised a ruler's daughter in Luke 8, 49 through 56. And he raised Lazarus in John 11, 1 through 44 is where we read about that. And you could even include the saints who were raised from the dead during Jesus' own resurrection if you wanted to. You can read about that in Matthew 27, 50 through 53. Listen to John Calvin's paraphrase of verse 32. And, and he, is, he is actually acting like this is what Jesus said. So this is what Jesus meant. It's as if Jesus is saying this now is the way he did his paraphrase. God intended to make known to you by me distinguished benefit. He has conferred them upon you by my hand. Banish me as such as you please. I have done nothing that does not deserve praise and goodwill. In persecuting me, therefore, you show your rage against the gifts of God. So what Calvin is saying is that by them rejecting Jesus, they're rejecting those miracles and those gifts given by the Father. And in a similar way, when an unbeliever refuses to give glory and thanks to God for the breath in his lungs, the roof over his head, the clothes on his back, the food on his table, over and over, all these expressions of common grace and providence, that unbeliever shows his rage against the gifts of God, doesn't he? And when an unbeliever hears the gospel proclaimed by a faithful minister and, and says in his heart, this is foolishness, I refuse to believe it, he shows his rage against the gift of God. John 4.10, the living water, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Go back and underline the word Father in your Bible. Underline it there. And you might want to underline it in these other places because it appears five times in this passage, verses 31 through 42. Five times you will see the title Father there, and it is capitalized. What does this show? This shows that Jesus was unafraid to proclaim His deity, His sonship, His godness in front of these bloodthirsty, violent religious leaders. Now look at verse 33. Now the Jews are responding to Jesus' statement about, you're going to kill me for doing good things? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work. Let me, let, me, let me redo that. The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you because you being a man make yourself God. That's why we're going to do it because you're blaspheming because you're making yourself out God. Now, how is it that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, were very easily able to pick up on what Jesus has been saying all along about his godness, but a lot of Christians can't figure this out, and they just flatly reject the deity of Christ? Even the Pharisees knew what he was saying. This is why they wanted to stone him, because of blasphemy. Well, there are two forms of blasphemy. First, Blasphemy occurs when God is deprived of the honor which belongs to Him. So when a person 
denies or deprives God of the honor that he is rightfully entitled to, they commit blasphemy. What does that say about every unbeliever of all time? It says they are walking blasphemers because they reject God, they deny Him, and they refuse to glorify and honor Him. And that ought to make you think, if you're an unbeliever, you're a walking blasphemy. You need to repent and believe in Jesus. That's the first kind, when you deprive God of the honor that He is entitled to that belongs to Him. Second, blasphemy occurs when anything unsuitable or contrary to God's nature is ascribed to Him. So when we take something that God is not about or does not represent Him rightly and we apply it to Him or ascribe it to Him, we've committed blasphemy. When people say things like, God doesn't exist, they blaspheme because He does exist. When people say things like, God is not good, He's evil, look at the world around us, they blaspheme because God has clearly described Himself as good and the only good in all of creation. When people take God's name in vain, use His name or the name of the Lord Jesus in vain or as a cuss word, they blaspheme, they commit blasphemy. So there's your two types, right? When you deprive of Him honor and when you ascribe to Him something that He is not. He is not evil or any of those things. Now, the religious leader's argument is that Jesus is a blasphemer because being a, in their mind, mortal man, he lays claim to divine honor. And under normal circumstances, that would be blasphemy. If somebody goes around saying, I'm God, and there's been a lot of false messiahs throughout all, the, uh, throughout all of time, when somebody says, I'm God, or likens themselves to God, and requires that people glorify and honor Him as they would God, they're blaspheming. So, so the religious leaders are right in their interpretation of the law. You can't do this, but they're just wrong about the person of Jesus because they don't rightly understand who He is. Jesus is not merely a mortal man. He is a man, but He is also the Son of God, right? And He proved His divinity over and over and over. He proved His worthiness of divine honor over and over and over. How so? Through countless signs and wonders. So many that John at the end of his gospel says, there's not enough books in the world to list them. Do we think that Jesus performed miracles only, and they would say this in the social gospel movement, only because He's, or primarily because He's compassionate? Well, of course He's compassionate. But He didn't heal people just because He's compassionate. Every miracle is a statement of His deity. He did things that only God can do. We understand this, right? I can't heal people. In fact, I think I make them sicker. <laughs> think about it. Every miracle is a, is a stamp of authenticity on His deity. Every one of them. He, he proved that he, is, that he is God, he proved that He is divine, He proved that He is the true Son of God, and proved that He is worthy of that honor through countless signs and wonders and through unequaled, unprecedented preaching. Matthew 7, 29. He preached in such a way, at such altitude, that people it just blew their minds because it is God Himself preaching. Men don't typically preach at that level. God preaches at that level. And some men whom God fills 
maxes out with his spirit, can get close, but not, not at the level that God preaches with absolute precision and perfect everything. The religious leaders, quite frankly, had been given sufficient evidence of the divinity of Christ. They had been given more than enough evidence. All of those miracles and teachings and things that blew their minds and even convinced some of those religious leaders to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, and others. They had been given sufficient evidence, but they loved their sin, and they refused to repent and believe. These men were the real blasphemers. They were committing the unpardonable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, rejection of the one whom the Spirit physically revealed to mankind, the one conceived of the Spirit and born of a virgin, the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus. These men were, as Jonathan Edwards said in his unforgettable sermon entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, These men were dangling over the pit of hell by the thinnest of threads. It's precisely what they were doing by rejecting His his deity, absolutely. Rejecting Him as Savior, absolutely. All of the above. Look at verses 34 through 36. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? Verse 35, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? What a great response by Jesus. The legalistic religious leaders viewed the entire Old Testament as law not just the writings of Moses, not just the Pentateuch. They saw all 39 books of the Old Testament as their law. So you must understand that. And Jesus, right here in this brilliant statement, uses the Old Testament, their law, to rebuke them for overreacting to His use of the word God in reference to Himself. He takes them to Psalm 82, verse 6, which was a favorite of theirs, by the way, where God refers to Israel's judges as gods, lowercase g. These judges were like gods in that they exercised godlike authority over the people and rendered godlike judgments. All judges are godlike in this way. Okay, a judge has been given the authority to either preserve life or to put it to death. And that is God-like, in a sense. And it is important to note that in that psalm there, the word gods does not in any way refer to divinity. It is not a reference to the divine. It is a reference to the appointed position where a level of authority and power is exercised similar to that of God. The trouble with Israel's judges at that time was that they were thoroughly unjust. They were showing partiality to the wicked rather than giving justice to the weak and needy. You can read about that in verses 2 through 4 of Psalm 82. 
Doesn't that sound like our judicial system today, where it rules in favor of those who seek evil and shows partiality to those who do evil? Our system is becoming more and more backwards, my friends. In this text, it was as if God had rebuked the judges through the psalmist. You have been given godlike authority to do what is right, but you misuse it. You misapply it. In verse 7, God completely blew them out. He said, nevertheless, like men, you shall die. God deals very sternly with unjust judges. The religious leaders could not dispute the fact that those judges in that psalm were called gods in their law because, as Jesus put it, Scripture cannot be broken. Here is Jesus' logic. If the religious leaders were not bothered by God's use of the word gods in describing a bunch of worthless evil judges, why were they bothered when Jesus, who did no evil and whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, called Himself the Son of God? This is what Jesus is saying to them. You're minced over my use of the title, but you're not minced over their use or that use of it there. It was as if Jesus had said, you're not upset that those bad judges were called gods in Psalm 82, 6? But when I call myself the Son of God, you label me a blasphemer and then try to kill me? That's what He's saying to them. By appealing to the Old Testament, Jesus was trying to get the religious leaders to abandon their biased conclusions about Him and consider the object evidence. But these guys were insanely stubborn, immovable in their thinking. Why? because their hearts were hardened and their consciences were seared by sin. These were the men who were supposed to be about the truth, the defenders of the truth, the preachers of the truth, all about the truth, and they were absolutely blind to the truth. Isn't that incredible? They were hired and paid to be ministers of the truth, and they were thoroughly blind. I hope that we're not blind to the truth in, in our own ways, the truth of who we are or what we're doing that is illicit and opposed to the will of God. I hope we're not blind. I hope we're not seared in our consciences like these men were, as I said earlier. In 37 and 38, Jesus offers them a solution. He says, if I am not doing the works of the Father then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now, verse 37 is a reiteration of verse 32. He re-explains what he's already said. The miracles Jesus performed prove that he and the Father share the same divine nature. They're both God and that they share the same purpose. The salvation of the sheep. Those miracles that He did prove that Jesus is God. And I think Jesus basically gives them kind of an ultimate litmus test here. The solution is, here's a test. If I do not perform miracles, then don't believe that I am the Son of God. Don't believe that I'm divine. If I don't perform any miracles, then reject my divinity. 
But if I do miracles, believe, know, and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. In other words, believe that I am God. No miracles? Reject the deity. If I perform miracles, you better believe it. You better believe I'm one with him. This is what Jesus has just told them. Did Jesus perform any miracles after this point in his ministry, in the narrative? Absolutely. In chapter 11, we read about one of the most distinct and amazing miracles of all, the raising of Lazarus. The raising of Lazarus. So Jesus says, here's the test. If I don't do any, reject my deity. If I do, you better accept it, right? There, boom, chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. He proves that he has the deity. He proves that he and the Father are one, right? Did the religious leaders pass his litmus test after the raising of Lazarus? Did they accept the evidence like Jesus exhorted them to do and believe that he is the Son of God? No, they plotted for how to arrest and kill him again in verses 45 through 57 of chapter 11. And guess what else they did? They even tried to assassinate Lazarus. We better get rid of the evidence. Chapter 12, verse 10. We can't have him walking around. We know he was dead. He stinketh. I was by the tomb. It was nasty. And now he's walking around talking about how Jesus raised him from the dead. We can't have that. So let's take him out. And they weren't able to do it. How did the religious leaders react to Jesus' devastating correction of their violent behavior and persistent unbelief? Verse 39, again they sought to arrest him but he escaped from their hands. <laughs> so after all of that, and even giving them a simple test that they could do to measure whether Jesus is God or not, they try to arrest him. <laughs> and it says, but he escaped their hands. Verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. What happened while Jesus was out there in the wilderness doing preaching the gospel and doing the things that he did. Look at 41 and 42. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. Verse 42, and many believed in him there. Love that. I've always thought John the Baptist was an amazing man of God. My admiration for him increased even more after I read these verses. His testimony about the Lord was so clear that later on, after he was killed by Herod Antipas, when people heard Jesus' sermons and saw his miracles, they immediately remembered John the Baptist's testimony, his words about Jesus. When Jesus preached and, and did the healings and things that he did, people thought, wow, I remember almost three years ago when John the Baptist was talking about him and telling us who he was and what he would do. And, and look, it's all true. If you have any doubts about John the Baptist or any concerns about his faith and commitment to Jesus, verses 41 and 42 should forever remove them. God used his faithful testimony to help convince these people of Jesus' divine identity, his Messiahship. And they didn't stop there. What does 42 say? Many believed in him there. Wow. You know, if you're a believer, you have a testimony, which means you have a story about the grace of God in your life and what He's done for you. Are you sharing it with others? 
Is God actually using uh, your testimony, you and your testimony, to make Jesus known as he did with John the Baptist? I hope so. That's what we're called to do, Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. Closing, I'm going to read a section from the Nicene Creed. Since we started there, we'll close there. The Nicene Creed, has anyone ever read that? Yeah, a few people? That's still out there. There's a couple of different versions of it. There's a modern version, which is a little easier to read and still captures the same truths. And this section that I'm going to read from it addresses the deity of Jesus Christ, His Sonship. And I want you to remember the context in which it was written. The Arian heresy was sweeping through the Roman Empire and throughout the Eastern churches. Before I even read it, I was just thinking about that. You're talking about the 300s here. The church has always had to deal with heresies. Always. The Apostle Paul dealt with heresies that were arising in the churches. The Apostle John, who God used to script or write this gospel, he dealt with docetism, an early heresy, and, and then became Gnosticism, which was just nothing more than a rejection of Jesus' personhood of his humanity. Well, he wasn't human. He was all God. You see, people go both ways. He's all God or he's all human. He's one or the other, but they're not willing to confess that he's both. Is that a difficult truth to get your mind around? How can a person be both fully God and fully man? It's called the hypostatic union. I can't get my mind around it, but it's a reality. And to think that in the early 300s, this heresy was taking the church by storm. The church had, by the 700s, it had seven ecumenical council meetings, and all of them dealt with particular heresies. I think the second or third one, the church stood up, and it was really kind of becoming Roman Catholic at that point. It wasn't fully, but it was becoming that way. It was still kind of Catholic, but it made a ruling to get rid of all of the images because intelligent, smart leaders in the church at that point realized that pictures of Mary and pictures of saints and all these things are misleading people and causing them to worship the idols. They're called iconoclasts, those who reject images. Images are bad. They mislead people. And in the early days of the church, they said, this is bad. Don't have this stuff. And they got rid of all of it. By 700, they reversed it and brought it all back. And now look at it today. Jesus is the smallest image in most Roman Catholic churches. Mary is the largest. Who is the God of Roman Catholicism? Mary! My mom's a Roman Catholic, and I love her. I love her. There's so much idolatry prevalent in that religion, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So much heresy. It isn't what it's supposed to be. And the reformers tried to bring it back. And the Roman Catholics said, no. We love the idols. We love the images. We love our Pope. That isn't to say that there aren't some Roman Catholic believers who really love Jesus and that's the only one they love and they believe he's God and all that. Praise the Lord. As a whole, it's apostate. And you know what? There's plenty of Protestant churches that are apostate. Plenty. 
Lots of guys in my camp that are screwed up. Heresy everywhere. It's disgusting. They were dealing with it back then. But back then, they were still about the Bible and they made right decisions. They tried to. And they scripted this creed. And you know what they said about this creed? If you affirm the truths in this creed, then clearly you're a Christian. If you reject them, you're not a Christian. This is the bold statement these bishops made. And here's the section about Christ's deity. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. This simple statement basically summarizes everything Jesus said about His divine nature, about His sonship, about His Godness. The question is, do we believe that Jesus is God? Do we believe it? Do we believe that Jesus is God? Do we believe that when the Scripture uses the title Son of God, it refers explicitly to His deity? That's the only way to translate it out of the Greek. Every time Jesus uses the title Son of God, He is referring to His deity. Do we believe that? Or have we been taught our whole life in oneness Pentecostalism or whatever it is, or Jehovah Witnessism or Mormonism, or whatever our background was, or do we believe what they say? Do we believe the Arians or do we believe Jesus' clear teachings? Has Jesus not presented a case for His sonship right here in this very text? Of course He has. He used logic, everything, to bring it to their attention and they refused to believe it. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? If we do not believe that Jesus is God, everything else we believe about Him becomes null and void. We lose it all. If He is not God to us, He is nothing to us. And it doesn't matter what we think or what we believe or what we've been taught. The Scripture is settled. It's a done issue. Luther said, justification is the article by which the church stands or falls. You know what I say? The deity of Jesus Christ is the reality by which the heavens and the earth stand or fall. Have we not read Colossians 1:16 through 17, which talks about how all things were created by Jesus, for Jesus, through Jesus, the eternal one? who existed before all of those things. If He created them, then He must have existed before them. That must make Him what? God. The Scriptures are clear on the matter. God has settled it once and for all. The case is closed. Athanasius was right. Arius was wrong. Jesus is God. Period. Believe it. Even if you've been taught not to, believe it, believe it, believe it. 
I commend you to not only believe in His life, death, burial, and resurrection for your salvation, but accept His full personhood. Accept Him as the God-man, for this is who He is. Amen. We have this moment to reflect upon what we've heard, confess any sin that we have, and it could be that this morning your sin is that you have been rejecting His deity this whole time while professing to be a Christian. This is a sin that you need to, it is a blasphemy, and it is a sin that you need to repent of. You need to accept Jesus as He said He is and as the Scripture clearly testifies. Believe that He is fully God, fully man. Don't try to wrap your mind around it. Just believe it. Take it by faith. Okay? You better believe that. Maybe it's some other heresy or something else that's infiltrated your life. Maybe you have a Roman Catholic background and you're still praying the rosary to Mary. Stop. It's blasphemy. She's a person. She's dead. She can't hear you. She can't hear you. She's not God. She's a blessed woman. Believe me, the Scripture says that of her. She should be admired. She should be honored. She should not be worshipped. You worship her, you're worshipping a demon. You're worshipping a figment of your imagination. Leave it. Don't pray to the saints. Don't pray to Mary. Drop it all. Get rid of the religion. It's false religion. It's apostasy. Get rid of it. Come solely to Christ as your Lord and Savior, as your God. Pray to Him. Pray to the Father in the name of Son, in the Holy Spirit. Believe in the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Believe what Scripture teaches, not what your tradition says. Traditions can be good, but traditions can also be the spawn of Satan. I don't know what your sin is. I don't know what your blasphemy is. Maybe it's what you've been saying with your tongue, and maybe you've taken the Lord's name in vain, or maybe you just haven't ascribed glory and honor to Him like you should in your life, in your finances, in your marriage, in your relationships. Maybe you haven't kept your dating relationship holy, and you've been doing things you ought not do. You're not glorifying God with that. Repent of it. I don't know. You know your sins. You don't want me to know all your sins. I'll end up using them as an illustration. And then you'll be like, I'm leaving the church, and then I'll feel like an idiot because I should have never done that. <laughs> I'm kidding. I might do it. I don't know. My kids are really careful around me all the time. They walk on eggshells. Don't give them any artillery for Sunday. Don't even look at them. I don't like to air out people's sins in public. That's horrible. And if I ever do that, you make sure to correct me. I don't know what your sins are. You do. Your God does. He knows what your sins are. You confess them to Him, and you claim the blood of Christ for your sins and blasphemies. And when you get to that moment after confessing those sins, then you can take those things with all joy, the juice and the bread. They represent the broken body and shed blood of Jesus for every sin, every blasphemy, all of it. He absorbed it all on the cross. He absorbed the wrath of God for those sins. We should be destroyed, incinerated for what we've done to God. We're all rebels who have committed cosmic treason. Thanks be to Jesus. Confess, take those things with all joy. Maybe you need to have a little more conversation with me or one of the other elders because of your background and you're not sure what to do. I'd love to meet with you. I'm not going to beat you up.
I want you to know the gospel. Take your time, family, and enjoy this time. Confess, remember, and give him thanks for what he's done.